Welcome back to the second part of the first episode of Chronically Invisible. We are back here today for, uh, I guess it'll be the second part of my story. Yeah, this is, you said you were going to dive into the deep end today. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get down to it. Uh, we're going to get into the deep end and uh, talk about some, some uh, sometimes difficult subject matter, but you know, um, what we're here to talk about today is the side that a lot of people don't think about with some of these things, which is often the shame that can come along with it. Mm, go on. So I'm going to start off with, um, you know, I ended last week with a quote from Brene Brown. And like I said, Brene Brown is one of my favorite uh, speakers, authors. And uh, she has so much, uh, so many positive things to say about a lot of mental health issues. And um, she's spoken extensively um, on vulnerability. And I think what's probably what started it was talking about shame. Mm. And with, with, with shame, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, we're, no, a lot of people don't really want to think about that. They don't really want to talk yeah. about it. And that's one of the things that I really admire about her. It's like a lot of times people, if it's touchy subjects if they know nothing about it. You yeah. Know, like they don't know how to respond. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people don't know how to respond to it. They don't really know what to think about it. And often I think a lot of people are afraid to talk about mm-hmm. things that they don't know about and that they um, are afraid to really dig into. So one thing that Brene Brown, one of the quotes that really stuck out to me a lot and uh, kind of hit home for me was she said, the quintessential elicitor of shame is unwanted identity. And for me, I think that that really hit home for me because for so long, I thought of spina bifida, everything that comes along with that. I thought that, that wasn't just what I had, what I dealt with, what I was you know, going through. I thought it was who I was. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, you know, it's one of those things where um, is it something that has definitely shaped me and the person that I am now? Absolutely. There's no question about it. But it's not just who I am. I, it's not, I am not my diagnosis. Yeah. I think there's a, a big sense coming out of like a big sense of relief coming out of that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. Like that finally accepting that this isn't who I am. This is just, you know, something that I have to deal with on a daily basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's so, that so often it's like it's a, it was a tough point to come to, but an important crossroads of coming to, it almost seems kind of, opposites or you know but it's like it's not it's not who I am it's not my identity it's not you know necessarily everything about me but at the same time in so many really good ways it's definitely shaped me and what go on, unpack that what what yeah. good ways you talking about yeah so like I was like I was saying I mean I think that in so many ways it has shaped me to be more you know more kind more uh, understanding of other people and almost more willing to look to look somebody in the eye and be able to ask, especially people that are close to me, be able to ask. Like check in with people Josh, and make sure they're okay. Be able to ask, Josh, how you doing? Yeah. And you might have to ask it twice, you know, because I really want to know. I, I don't want the... The, uh, you know, the quick answer of, oh, yeah, I'm doing great, you know. And then maybe that's the case. If so, I want to know more about that, too. 
Yeah, I had you a buddy know? that used to always, he would ask, he's like, how you doing? Somebody say, good, good. And he's like, yeah, you always say that. Is it, is it true? And just kind of follow it up one more time. And then he said the amount of times people would just kind of share something that was burdening them or whatever and get it off their chest uh, that he got from that. He was like, you know, we're just so conditioned socially to engage in small talk. Yeah, for sure. A lot of times we don't know how to really be honest and open and vulnerable and, you know. Well, and it's kind of funny. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day that, you know, we've had some some really good conversations about around, you know, mental health and, and a lot of these things. And uh, it's funny how we were both kind of saying that I just only have so much space for yeah. how's the weather, you know. <laughs> To talk about the weather in baseball, you know, it's kind of the big joke. It's funny, the older you get, the less space you have for that. I felt like when I was young, we could talk about the weather and rock and roll all day. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Like, just talk about nothing. But the older you get, a lot of times, I mean, there's real things going on that you have to deal with. And, uh, yeah, small talk is, it becomes quite less sought after, I think. And, but, or not like, very good at opening up, so then yeah. that leaves us with what? Well, and like we've like we've said, I mean, opening up to somebody who's not safe to the, in the wrong space is is not it's not helpful, it's not safe, it's not good for you. Yeah, you know, and especially before you're ready. But uh, I think that at some point, you know, I don't care whether it's you know family, a close friend you know, your therapist, whoever it is, at some point there's some, there's some things that just have to, they have to come out. They almost have to be purged. They have to purged. leave the body. <laughs> they have to be purged. Yeah. You know, it's just I, like I, a, yeah. That's, that's interesting. That's something that I know me and you have both done, IFS therapy. That is something that, you know, you can really kind of tap into in that space is that healing that goes on with your inner child. Can you expound a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can really explain the ins and outs of IFS therapy well, but, I mean, what they, what they talk about in IFS therapy is they talk about parts and how we all kind of have parts of ourselves that are different from who we really truly are when we are in what they would call true self. You know, it's not necessarily who you are at your core, but a lot of times it's these things that we have we've we've learned to to carry over the years you know it's the it's the parts that kind of kind of trip us up like one of the things that um was definitely a huge uh part that i've dealt with over the years and didn't really know what it was and that so many people deal with and one of the easiest ones to explain is the inner critic i mean the inner critic i i feel like and and i think this goes along with ifs is that sometimes you know it starts off as you know trying to protect you trying to wake you up to something you know but when things are out of line, when things are are, um, are not in in balance, there the inner critic is just coming after you and just 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 getting after you like crazy, and so it really starts to wear on you. And then at some point, you have to confront confront that part and try to to deal with it and um, be able to, um, I guess what they would call unburden that part. Yeah. You know, in and IFS terms, like John, as John Moreland might say, uh, dealing with our old wounds. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, John Moreland is, I would say he's probably the most impactful uh, songwriter I've, I've ever heard in my life. I mean, he has had more of an influence on me than any, and, and I've been influenced by many songwriters, many 
music is kind of our thing, um, you know, something we've always bonded over and um, still is. And f- there's so many songwriters out there today, especially I have found, I mean, there's a lot, there's lots of them, but uh, I found a lot in the kind of alternative country uh, folk genre that are, they are really, they're able to tell stories, but they're also able to, um, the best of it is really able to get super specific, which actually makes it more universal. It's like if you try to sound general, you try to sound, you know, you try to sound universal, and that's like your whole goal, it just kind of ends up not being all that meaningful. It's kind of like group therapy. Uh, someone's story holds a mirror up to you, even though it's different. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the, that's the part of hearing other people's stories that's been so impactful for me is to be able to hear somebody's story that is on the surface different, but really does kind of hold up that mirror where you, where you, yeah. where you really, by hearing somebody's else, somebody else's story, I actually feel seen. You know, really a lot of times I feel like it's been difficult post COVID. A lot of us are just looking for connection and just, you know, a lot of times it feels like you're throwing rocks into the, into the mountaintops and stuff like that, or, oh, yeah. you know, into the abyss. But, um, it can be like, what is a, a realization that you've made like socially in the last year since you've been going to therapy and the, how does that translate to your social life? Well, I think from uh, from therapy and also from actually being willing and really working on um, deepening relationships, deepening friendships, finding more connections, um, that I was kind of uh, a little leery, almost kind of afraid to, to, to go deeper. Yeah. Uh, now that I'm actually willing to go there, I'm finding out that there's so many other people that you know, when I share my story or when they share theirs with me, it's like there's so many things that connect. There's so many ways that we are similar. Yeah. And it's like all we can see right now in this political climate, you know, in, in America, it's like all we look at is the differences. We're not paying attention. We're not really looking for, you know, where that common ground is, where that common experience often is, you know, the emotional experience. Because, again, it's like, you know, the, 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 the experiences, the, the specifics may be different, but so often the pain and the, and the emotions are the same. Yeah, I, I can totally, totally get that. You know, we need, a, we need kind of a moderate thinker in this country uh, leading. You going to run for president anytime soon? I do not want that job. That's <laughs> probably the worst job in the world. <laughs> when we come back to, when we swing back around to the, the idea of shame, and it, it can often become we are ashamed because we have this, and often self-imposed, for me at least, this identity of, of like, it becomes our identity of all of our, like, things that we think that we fall short on. It's, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not that I struggle with this. It's, it, be, it can become an I am this, yeah. which isn't true. What's something specific? So for me, um, it was... With growing up with spina bifida, you know, having some of these issues that I've dealt with, uh, specifically a lot of the, like, the stomach issues, you know, um, some of that stuff can be inherently a little bit embarrassing. You know, you don't necessarily want to talk about it. And, and like I was saying before, you know, you definitely want to be in a space, safe space before you do, you know, share a lot of these things that you're struggling with. Um, or that can, I think that can definitely go the wrong way um, for you. But 
so often some of these some of these struggles, it's like we take them on as it's not what I'm going through, it's who I am. Mm. So that's where that shame can really get to you. And it can become this, like I said, the unwanted identity of, you know, it's like you want things to be differently, but you don't know how to change it. And some things you can't change. And so it has to be, like, I think for me, it kind of went back to the, you know, reclaiming my story, reshaping, you know, a lot of this to um, the shame that I was going through for some, some of these things. It's like, uh, for me, a lot of, definitely one of the important parts for me was that I, could, I finally could see that I'm not the only one going through it. Yeah. And that was a big step. Because for so long, I, you know, while, while, while also discounting my story a little bit, um, as I'd said previously, it, it, you know, I also was thinking that I was the only one in the world that was going through this stuff. And it's like, nobody could understand, you know. And what I found out through therapy, through talking to other people, is that, you know, it's not true. It's not, there's nothing, and I mean this in a good way, like there's nothing like special about it. Like it's, it, and that's really a relief yeah. to find out that uh, so many of these things, you know, there's other people that are going through this sim- these, so many of these similar things. And when you can find out that you're not alone, at least for me, it's like a, I, could, I could finally breathe. Yeah. I could finally be like, Oh, somebody else understands. You know, there's so many people fighting so many different unseen battles. I mean, that's why I think your podcast is brilliantly named Chronically Invisible uh, because so many of the things that we struggle with, um, they are, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to guess it at the workplace or, you know, because people hide things so well. I know when I was, when I was coaching with, you know, before I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder and uh, kind of got that figured out, I was amped up all the time and like really, and I think a lot of people that really knew me knew that I wasn't myself and that I might need help or some medication or something like that. But it was hard to take that step because as a man, you're like, Hey, I'm gonna. I, I gotta will it, and uh, I gotta show up at my job, and I gotta do this, and I'm leading this team, and and blah blah blah, strong man avoidant stuff. Like, you know, once I once I decided to go and get checked out, and possibly check in, and go through group therapy for two months, and all that stuff, like, and get the right medication. I felt like I got my brain back. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And then people would see me and they're like, happy to see me. Hey, how's it going? It's like, great. I'm the same person, but at the same time, I'm a different person because like I'm not on edge all yeah. the time like I was either hyperactively or depressively, you know? And, sure. and that was something that never existed before I got COVID. Absolutely. And I think there's a, and I've heard that there's a lot of people that have gone through similar uh, neurological situations as I did. Um, and man, I would encourage anybody that if it's lasting more than six months, nine months, 
get checked out. Like, go, you can, insurance can cover it, but, like, go get checked out uh, at a, at a, at a behavioral health uh, clinic or anything. I went to Erlanger Behavioral Health, and they were amazing over there. I mean, it was great. Well, and I think, and, and thank you so much for, for sharing that, Josh, and for being willing to be that vulnerable. I mean, that's something that I've really learned is that, again, it's like I'm learning from, from other people all the time what, you know, the power in being able to uh, be vulnerable and being able to, to share what's going on because for so long, and I think that's something that, we, that you know, we've talked about too, is that, you know, we didn't really know how to talk about it because there's so many stigmas around this stuff and we've just got to get past that as a society where it's like, you know, just like anything else, just like you would go to the doctor if you had a cold, if you were sick, you know, sometimes we just need help. You know, we need therapy. We need, some people need, you know, we need these medications. We need different things for different people. And once we get the, the resources, you know, things can change and, and, and we can get better and we can actually heal. Yeah, and I think that's something that, you know, a lot more people are talking about it now these days. Uh, there's a lot more awareness and it's just a lot safer environment to come out and say, hey, uh, yeah, I've, I'm dealing with bipolar disorder. Like, I'm dealing with an anxiety disorder, or I'm dealing with OCD, or whatever it is Absolutely. that you're dealing with. Um, it's encouraged to get taken taken care of and get it managed. Uh, but still, I mean, there's still stigmas around it. Just because I suffer from bipolar disorder and have to take some medication to kind of level me out a little bit chemically doesn't mean that I'm incapable of doing a job. Sure, you know absolutely. I mean? That absolutely. shouldn't be a blip on somebody's resume. Now, it may act up like it did and hinder me from doing a job at a certain time in the same way that if I had to have a knee replacement, that might have me out for a couple of weeks. Yeah. You know? so people don't realize that the brain is an organ. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. an actual organ. Like, mental health is health. Yeah. Well, and I think that I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was, um, it was uh, run by a psychiatrist, and he's got people that are telling their stories of different, of different uh, things that they've been through, uh, whether it's mental health issues or addiction or whatever, different things. And um, the one thing that, he, that I was really um, struck by was when he was talking about some of his story and um, at one point, he had struggled with, uh, I think he'd maybe been on, like, painkillers or something for, after mm-hmm. a surgery. And, um, and he had an issue. You know, he, had a, he, he got addicted to these painkillers. And at the time, the employer that he had, he, uh, you know, he had tried to hide it for a while. And then, you know, his wife knew that he was struggling. And, and she encouraged him to, to, to go to his employer. And he went to his employer. And his, his employer said, okay, we're going to get you help. We're going to be there. Nice. You know, you're, you're going to go get some treatment. And when you get well, we're going to be here. And I thought that was an incredible example of someone who was able to 
be there for somebody else who was, you know, who was able to facilitate, help facilitate yeah. their recovery. You know, it's just, you know, at the place I was at, they did something very similar when I was really going through it and they knew it and, and they, they gave me a sabbatical from teaching for the year. Uh, and that was, that was huge for me. Yeah. I mean, it, it decreased so much anxiety. Uh, it allowed me to really throw myself into my counseling. And I think it really got me through the year of coaching wise. Um, I think my whole nervous system was just shot at that point. Sure. <laughs> you know, well, I, I mean, take a step back from everything from COVID. I mean, one thing I'll just speak on quickly, um, just from knowing a little bit of what other people have been through with COVID is with a lot of this, what they would call long haul, long haul COVID, uh, you know, there's people, you know, you're, you're not sleeping when you're not sleeping. So much of that can yeah. ripple out, you know, it's like, what is going on? Exactly. Like, I can't. And there's nothing worse than that insomnia where it's like, you look at the clock and you're like, if I fall asleep right now, I'll get four hours. Uh, open your eye, oh, if I fall right, sleep right now, I'll get three and a half hours. And then just over and over again until it's like, you got two hours left to sleep and you're like, now it's not even worth it. I'm just going to get <laughs> right. up and play Candy Crush. Like, yeah. goodness gracious. And the whole time I like, dread nighttime, like going to sleep. But yeah, going through all that while coaching uh, a highly competitive sport was, it was, it was a trip. I, I ain't going to lie. It was very intense time. But fortunately I've gotten through all that and, you know, just taking everything one day at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I can say, you know, it's been amazing to see, you know, you coming out of the other side of all of that. Yeah. And it's like you're back even more than, than I thought you could be. Yeah, it's just it's so awesome to be able to, to see, you know, how much you have thrived coming out of all of that because there's just like I said there's just so many things that uh when it comes to COVID and a lot of the a lot of the mental health stuff with that and um there were so many things that that people are going through and that you went through that you know I can't imagine what that was like but to see you be able to say you know what I need some help I need some help and so you went you got some help you uh you found the resources, and it's just amazing to be able to see somebody that I love so much that can really thrive after. I hey. mean, it's just amazing. Thanks, Hicks. It really is. That's the nicest thing you've ever said about me. <laughs> I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to share. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's like so many of these things, you know, why? I, I still don't understand fully. I don't understand fully. I think one thing we have to talk about when it comes to shame, especially for men, is this thing that for some reason we're still fighting, this traditional patriarchal view of masculinity. And this is something that, man, you put me onto a book and a writer um, a while ago called Terry Real. And Terry Real wrote a book in, what was it, the late 90s? Yeah, mid like to late 98. 90s um, called I Don't Want to Talk About It. And it's the, the, the hidden legacy of male depression. Aptly named. 
Happily named, absolutely. Because, and the crazy thing is, this was one of the first books published, I think in America, about specifically about male depression. Yeah. Which is crazy to think that, you know, late 90s was the first book about, about, on that subject. It's I know. It's just so crazy. It's wild, especially considering, you know, World War II and, and all of the PTSD that generations had to have that were passing it down to each other. I guess it was until the next generations came up. And he talks a lot about generational trauma and breaking Absolutely. generational curses and all that kind of stuff. It is a great book. It's such a good book. And I think one of the things that really was uh, kind of an important thing for me to hear that I kind of always knew this to a certain extent, but I never really heard it, heard it put into words this way, was when he talked about covert depression. And often overt depression is a lot of times what people think of. You know, you... Um, you can't get out of bed, you know, you're, um, some, some people are, you know, can get suicidal. There's just different things that people are going through that, that is like what we think of as like the classical model of what we, what we know of depression. Yeah. But with covert depression, you know, it might not necessarily be on the surface. There's so many things that people go through that they learn to hide, you know. And I think because of the stigmas, it's just easier it seems easier at the time. Yeah, if you wonder why we had ended up having this strongman complex in this country, this competitive dog-eat-dog -dog mentality, read Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumay. I'll have to check that one out. Oh, my. You told me about that one, but I'm I haven't checked you, it out yet. You want to talk about eye-opening and... You know, a woman authoring this book, too, from the female perspective, like, oh, my gosh, I don't get this, but I also do. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, she calls it like it is. It is such a scathing book on, uh, you know, the strong man, patriarchal stereotype that is celebrated so much in this country when it only fits a certain amount of people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It it is it's pretty scathing, uh, and it's you know commentary. Absolutely, and I, you know I'm gonna keep coming back to it just because, like I said, this Brene Brown has had so much influence on me. But one thing she talks about when she talks about uh, shame is that you know a lot of times her theory is that men and women are feel shame about different things. You know, so so men. Or I'll just start with women often feel shame about, or can sometimes feel shame about, they have to be perfect. They have to be able to do this, that, the other. They have to be able to, you know, carry a job, take care of their kids, be there for their husband, do all these things, and never make them see, never let them see you sweat. You have, that has to be like you're not even trying. And, you know, so women can experience shame around that. For men, it's don't let anyone see you as weak. Mm. So that makes a lot of sense. I can see that. I mean, it really makes a lot of sense for me, at least, because I think that our view of masculine, our traditional view, toxic view of masculinity has really gotten into, you know, you have to be certain things. You know, you have to be this big, strong guy. Yeah. You need to be 
the athlete. You need to be the um, really good-looking ladies' man. You know, a lot of these things that weren't necessarily easy roles for me. You know, yeah. uh, it wasn't necessarily. You know, I, I had a hard time with with women. You know, I, I didn't necessarily know how to talk to girls real comfortably, and um, I wasn't an athlete. I was around sports. I love basketball and football and, and all these sports and. And I grew up in a sports family, and I had so much fun being, being around it. But, you know, I'm not an athlete. So it's like, okay, at some point, there becomes the question of who am I? What is my identity? You know? And I wasn't a musician. I wasn't in sports. I wasn't an athlete, at least. Um, and when you're going to a small school, it's like, what else is well, there? Now, well, now, as an adult, you've been doing a lot of work answer that question now who are you who is mitch templeton that's a question that i've been working on answering for a while and um i think that because (laughs) i don't know why but for some reason because i always thought of my lack of like these quote like tactile skills you know these you know what being able to um, like I said, be a musician, be an artist, be an athlete, whatever it is. I always thought that that meant that I didn't, that I didn't have any, any skills, any, yeah. any um, talents. And now I can kind of see it as, you know, I think that um, the skill that I often overlooked, um, that I was able to kind of cultivate and develop because of my circumstances, was that ability to relate to people. Mm. And that ability to be able to... People skills. Yeah, these people skills. These They were called soft skills. Oh, yeah. I was always thinking that, like, I needed all these hard skills, and because I don't have them, um, I don't have any talent, you know? And it's, like, it, it's also I thought that because I didn't have them, it's, like, you either have it or you don't, yeah. which is also not true. You, you, didn't, you weren't just all of a sudden an amazing basketball player. You put in hours and hours and hours and hours in the gym to become that player. This is true. It's absolutely true. That's why I have a fake knee. That's actually true too. <laughs> but um, should have spent more time on my people skills because this jump shot doesn't do me nothing no more. Uh, you got somewhere that's at too. You definitely got some people skills for sure. Hey, I do my best. <laughs> so, um, but I think that because I didn't, you know, I thought that I didn't have any skills. I thought that I didn't have any talents. And um, again, none of this was put on me. It wasn't like you know. It wasn't like I was told, you know, that I didn't have anything. I wasn't told that I was never going to amount to anything. I was almost told the opposite. But for some reason, I didn't believe it. And then at some point, I think as I started to get well, as I started to work on myself and actually, like, put in some work through therapy, through different avenues, that it was able to kind of show me a light on myself. And... I was able to see for the first time in my life and believe that I had value. Dope. And honestly, I thought I didn't have anything to offer for a long time. But that's kind of an old story, you know? That's, that's old Mitch talking. That's, I would say, maybe, you know, young Mitch talking. And um, I'm not in that place anymore. I don't believe those things anymore. I, I, I can see now that I have things to offer and that I have a place, you know? So that's kind of where I've been lately, and um, I'm really excited about it for the first time in a long time. So, Good talks, my brother. Absolutely. Um, 
one thing that I do want to to share real quick, and I think this kind of is a good way to to wrap up um, kind of a lot of my story, uh, which is, you know, I read, um, I listened to a lot of audiobooks. So I'll just say I listened to the audiobook of uh, Scenes from My Life by White, Michael by Michael K. Williams, and um, he was an actor who was in uh, The Wire, Boardwalk Empire, uh, so many great great TV shows. And uh, he had one of my all-time favorite roles on uh, Omar on The Wire. But, he was um, great on that. He was amazing on that. So he wrote a memoir uh, about his life. And um, he said, I want to tell my story, not because it's unique, but because it's not. And that really hit home for me because when I heard that, I always thought that, like, you know, nobody would understand. Nobody has been where I've been. Nobody, you know, has been what I've been through, what I've been through. And, you know, they just don't get it. But the more I've, like I said, the more I, that I've been able to share with people, the more that I've talked to other people, again, it's like the experiences are so similar. Yeah. And that's where I find that so much of these things, so many uh, struggles that we have are so universal. And I think that if we can just get past, if we can almost get outside of ourselves, and be able to, to, uh, to talk to others about this stuff in a safe space, that we can find a lot of healing. At least I know that I have. Well, thanks, Josh, for being on the podcast with me. I really appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I will leave you with the lyrics from John Moreland's Latchkey Kid. Because I found a love that shines into my core, and I don't feel the need to prove myself no more. And when I look into the mirror, now I see a man I never knew that I could be.